Violence erupts in Jerusalem as Hamas rockets rain down on Israel. The U.S. and Iran inch closer to a new nuclear deal. We'll cover all these issues and more with our special guest, former U.S. Special Envoy for Iran and Venezuela, and former Deputy National Security Advisor Elliot Abrams. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. And welcome back to episode 13 of Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Jared, we have a very timely guest given all the news of the week. Let's not waste any time. Let's get right to him. Elliot Abrams, former special envoy for Iran and Venezuela during the Trump administration and former deputy national security advisor for President George W. Bush. Someone with years of experience in high-level government positions going back to the Reagan administration, a leading expert on the Middle East. And this month, the founding chairman of the Vandenberg Coalition, a new group focused on charting the course of foreign policy for conservatives conservatives in the post-Trump era. Elliot Abrams, thanks for joining us. Uh, so much to talk about this week. Let's just jump right in. Uh, we are seeing violence uh, break out in Israel this week, uh, first in Jerusalem, uh, followed by a sustained barrage of rocket fire from Gaza by Hamas and appear coordinating with Islamic Jihad as well. The left out there blaming Israel for instigating the violence originally in Jerusalem, some calling for de-escalation on both sides, most others simply calling for solidarity with Israel. A lot to break down here. Honestly, I think people in the middle are genuinely confused by the media coverage. What, in your view, are we watching right now? Is this an Intifada 3.0? Is it something else going on? Is it just a repeat of of past Hamas wars? Well, first, I'm really happy to be here. So um, thank you very much. And it's good to be on. Although it's not a great week to be on um, because of all the the violence, including deaths now. Um, I think people are confused. And I think one of the reasons they're confused is the press coverage is is crummy and very frequently misleading, and we can talk about that. Is it Intifada 3.0? I don't think so. You know, I hate to make a prediction like that because in a week it could be completely wrong. Um, But I don't think so. I think Hamas has gotten pretty much what it has wanted, and I don't think that this will turn into another you know, major war in Gaza. And I'm inclined to think things will quiet down a bit in uh, Jerusalem as well. I think so. Do you think, uh, do you see a connection between Biden coming into office and any of his early moves on it, on the Palestinians, on Iran? Are, are folks testing him now to see what his reaction is going to be? I don't think that's what this is. I think folks are testing him. Iran is. Uh, North Korea is. I think this is a kind of, um, as one Israeli general called it today, it's a perfect storm. You have Jerusalem Day. And it happens to coincide with one or two of the uh, most significant days of Ramadan. Um, you have a Supreme Court, Israeli Supreme Court decision coming very soon. It would actually have come now if it weren't for delay um, on some housing in 
an area of Jerusalem. We can talk about that. Um, and uh, you have what I think may be the most significant part of it, the cancellation, cancellation of the Palestinian elections. You know, had those elections been held, there is every reason from the polls to think that Hamas was going to do very well. It was going to do so well that though it, you know, it may not have, have taken over, it would have been very well represented in the Palestinian legislature, and it would finally have gotten into the PLO. So Mahmoud Abbas cancels those Palestinian elections, and what does Hamas do to show, well, he's doing nothing, but we're here, we're active, we're leading the Palestinian people. Uh, they do what you see in the last few days in Israel. Lots of violence, uh, attacks, and, and, and let's remember, this is not, uh, you know, just... Uh, uh, something that's happening in one place or two. This is a huge assault on Tel Aviv and the central parts of Israel. It's a very big step by Hamas. And do you think that the violence we saw originally in Jerusalem and the ensuing rocket attack, these are linked incidents. They're not just, oh, Hamas sees some protests over housing. Let's take advantage of the situation with rocket attacks. These are linked situations in your view. I think so. I mean, I'll throw one one more in, throw in the Abraham Accords. I mean, what are the Abraham Accords if you're Hamas? They're, again, to people saying, oh, the Palestinian stuff, we're not much interested in that. So if you're Hamas and you see a lost opportunity in the election, a lost opportunity with Arab states. You see an op- a moment when you turn back to what, you know, what is the heart of Hamas? It's violence. And so if I'm hearing you correctly, it's you think this is as much about the domestic political situation of the Palestinians as it is about anything else, right? They had, they're backed into a corner. Uh, they, they have an election call, called off. And so this is them showing that they're still relevant and everybody needs to continue to respect or, or at least deal with them. I think that's basically right. Uh, again, there are many aspects. I'll throw another one in. It may be partly a power struggle within Hamas as well between people who, um, want a great deal more um, violence. You know, uh, the Israelis have been dealing indirectly with a guy named Sinwar, but we now see a return of someone named Mohammed Deef, um, who's much m- more violent even. Um, so all of this, I think, really comes together at, essentially at the same time. I mean, the calendar parts are that legal case, Jerusalem Day, uh, Ramadan, the cancellation of the elections was quite recent, and obviously the uh, Abraham Accords um, are several months ago. But I think it all comes together right now. And it's, it is Hamas saying to the Palestinian people and the Arab states, we are still here, and we have the power to do great damage. 
So I do want to unpack the housing situation you talked about because the media frame right now, if it's to be, to be believed, is you know this is all violence that spun out of control because of an Israeli policy of evictions uh, of some housing in Sheikh Jarrah area of East Jerusalem, uh, and that this is very unfair to the Palestinians and they were fighting for their rights and and this all spun out of control and then the Israelis had to storm with their police on the Temple Mount and you know the the, the narrative goes on from there. Can you just break down what should our listeners understand about the complexity of the situation in Sheikh Jarrah and and how that situation has evolved? Let me make an analogy first. I think every one of the listeners knows about these restitution cases where art was stolen from Jews by Nazis. And many, many of them, many of the Jews are now... um, gone because so many years have gone by, but they have descendants who sue. And courts all over the world have found, and there are international conventions that say, well, sure, the Nazis took that property. It wasn't theirs. It was unjust. It was illegal. They just took it. So they have to give it back or pay restitution. Now, in the case of this neighborhood, Shimon Hatzadik or Sheikh Jarrah, Jews bought land there in 1874. They bought it. They had title to it. And Jews lived there until 1948 uh, or late 47. Actually, the attacks on that neighborhood uh, came heavily in December 1947 as Israel's War of Independence began. And every single Jew in that neighborhood was kicked out. And the Jordanians took over. And uh, Palestinians took over the housing. They just moved into it. Now, that lasted for 19 years, and then Israel returned to Jerusalem. So what did the Israelis do? Well, they kick out all the Palestinians? No, they did not. They passed a law that said, if you got title, you a Palestinian, if you got title from the Jordanians, well, okay, we'll live with it. We will accept it, and now it's yours. If you didn't get title from the Jordanians through their procedures, then you don't have any title. But if you're a tenant, you can still live there. They didn't want to evict people. It was, you know, no good deed goes unpunished, right? Um, So what did they do? They said, okay, if you've got a lease, stay there. Now we find that some of the leases are up. Time has passed since uh, 1967. Uh, In some cases, people have stopped paying rent. And in other cases, they're not tenants at all, they're squatters. So under Israeli law, really under any property law in any civilized country, you go to court and a court's going to make a decision. And probably because the lower courts have without fail said, okay, you know, the owners get this property back. It's likely that the Supreme Court's going to rule the same way. Uh, And that's where we stand. We're waiting for that final decision from the Supreme Court. Uh, the, the, the renditions of this in most of the press, including uh, the, the U.S. press, um, you know, make it sound as if the Israelis sort of picked out of a hat uh, some houses to evict people from because Jewish settlers want those houses. That is not the story. 
You know, Elliot, I'm, I'm struck by, and this is, uh, you know, I'm a recovering lawyer, um, which is to say I would never hire me to be your lawyer, but I could help you pick a good lawyer. But it strikes me as it sort of down the rabbit hole kind of property dispute, uh, that has gotten itself mixed up in the, in the frame of sort of international relations. Are there any analogies to some of the claims made by Palestinians on lands, uh, that they left were, were evicted from or otherwise abandoned pre 48 or, or is anybody else? Well, they usually, they usually point to Baca. That's usually the example that you hear about. Yeah. I mean, is there any, I just wonder if there's any analogy being, being drawn and, and does that have, does this case have any implication for any of those cases or, or those claims? Not really because of the way the Israelis treated these claims, you know, for the most part, what the Israelis did uh, and what the Jordanians did was just say, it's over. No more claims. This was a particular law that Israel passed that said, if you got title from the Jordanians, it's good. We'll accept it. And if you didn't, then we'll use normal landlord-tenant law. Uh, and that, that's where we stand right now. I don't think that that the real you know, people are mad about landlord-tenant law. This is a proxy, and it's a proxy for the idea that Jerusalem is Arab, and East Jerusalem is Arab, and Jews have no business there. And the Jews were thrown out in 1948 by the Jordanians, and they ought to stay out. I mean, that's what the argument really comes down to. And I don't know how we could possibly accept that argument. How many homes or, or buildings or tenants fall into this category of people who didn't have title? Uh, I don't know the exact number, but remember, if you're in that group and you're still paying rent, you're okay. If you've got a lease and you're paying rent, you're okay. It, there are some people in this case who um, have said, we're not going to pay rent anymore. And there are others, again, who are just squatters. So... Um, are there going to be some very sad cases here? Yes. Of people who've been in a place for a long time and their lease is up and they're going to have to move. But, uh, you know, we have cases like that all over this country and all over the world. You can't, I mean, the alternative is to say, well, if a tenant likes where he's living and his lease is up and he doesn't want to pay rent, he stays there forever. So I agree with you. Obviously, this is a pretext, a proxy, as you said. There are larger issues here. If you were in the White House, if you were advising this White House, you know what is the ideal response from a U.S. president, from a White House right now today, with rockets going off, with this violence? Yeah. With you know, how should the U.S. be responding? Um, well, I want to answer more broadly, not just on the Shimon uh, Sadiq Sheikh Jarrah uh, real estate dispute. Um, it is critical for everything that, that the United States wants uh, in the Middle East that Hamas suffer a defeat here. It is not just critical be because Israel is a friend and ally, but um, Hamas is part of the Muslim Brotherhood. We have friends in Egypt, Jordan, and the Gulf who are very much opposed to the Muslim Brotherhood. We're all very much opposed to terrorism. Remember when we talk about Hamas, we're not talking about a political group. We're talking about a terrorist group. So considered 
not only by the U.S., but by all of Europe. So it's critical. If, if you think there is any chance of improving relations between Israel and the Arab world, it's critical that Hamas suffer a big defeat. If you think that it's critical that more moderate voices remain alive and powerful among Palestinians, it's critical that Hamas suffer a significant defeat here. Uh, if, if you think that um, it is going to be possible uh, for Israel to calm this situation down and to avoid future attacks by Hamas, maybe not forever, but for many years, it's critical that the lesson learned by Hamas is we made a big mistake by expanding this attack to central Israel. Shouldn't have done it. And the only way to do that is for Israel to, frankly, to make Hamas pay a significant price. For the United States uh, not to recognize that, for the United States to be pressing Israel, um, oh, don't, don't respond very uh, energetically, would be a terrible mistake for our interests. How do you think this plays among the Arab states that have normalized with Israel? And does it impact the Abrahamic Accords? Does it put them in jeopardy? Does it put those countries in a tough spot uh, domestically with their own constituencies? Or, or are they sort of tacitly aligned, if not outwardly aligned, with Israel right now? It does put them in a tough spot. It does put them in a tough spot. And uh, you've seen several of them make statements um, decrying the violence and asking Israel uh, to make sure its police do not uh, any any longer go into East Jerusalem. Um, I think uh, first, uh, all of them want to see Hamas defeated. So does Mahmoud Abbas and the PLO, uh, Palestinian Authority and Fatah leadership, whatever they say, because Hamas is their enemy. And I can tell you this from personal experience in past uh, Israeli-Hamas confrontations. That's the view of uh, the Palestinian uh, capital in Ramallah. Um, so, yeah, it's very tough for the Arabs, but, but let's remember there's one other thing happening here. Israel's been in a political crisis for a while, right? And we don't know when it's going to get out. Might be next week, might, might take months more. The Arabs are judging Israel now. They're wondering, uh, how are the Israelis going to handle this? Are they in a kind of crisis where they can't make decisions? Are they unable to hit back the way they normally would? Is this going to be a defeat for the Israelis? If the Israelis come out of this looking weak, their attractiveness to the Arab governments as a friend is greatly diminished. Well, and I imagine the Iranians are watching this as well, and that has to be also on the minds of the Gulfies. I mean, as, as far as them coming under attack by rocket fire from the Houthis uh, on an ongoing basis, and they expect a lot of people throughout the West to come to their defense. You know, I would expect them to, if they can't do it publicly, to at least somehow show, we get it, we're in solidarity. This is happening to our version of Hamas as well. It's tough for them to do it in public. Um it's tougher in some places than in others uh, because it depends on where public opinion is. You know, you've seen the polls in Egypt and Jordan, even after decades after the peace treaties, um, the public opinion is still very anti-Israel. It's probably a lesser problem, say, in the UAE. Um, but I think those governments need to 
be careful. I just hope you asked about the Biden administration. I hope they're smart enough to know that what is said in those kind of statements that, you know, just palliatives for the local population is not necessarily what they really mean. And I hope that their ambassadors in Washington, or I hope their governments say to our ambassadors, because we don't really have any ambassadors out there right now, but to our chargés, hey, look, this is what we're saying publicly, but uh, here's what we, we really think. And to that end, is there a certain amount of that that's going to go on from the Biden administration right now? You know, they have a razor thin majority in the House, uh, you know, a pretty big tent with definitely a, a handful of pretty people who are pretty far left in the Democratic caucus. Uh, doesn't Biden have to say some kind of, you know, platitude about, uh, you know, de-escalation and not overwhelming force and, 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 and are they privately communicating to the Israeli government, you know, Hey, you do what you have to do to defend your people. I hope so, but I'm dubious. I really don't know. I mean, if you look at what uh, I was just reading the, uh, day after day, the state department spokesman being tortured by the press, you know, cause they keep, pushing him to say, we want the Israelis not to hit back very hard, or to say, the Israelis can do whatever they want. And uh, he won't do it. And he keeps repeating and repeating and repeating. Same thing with the White House uh, spokesperson. Um, so I, I think what they're going to keep on saying is, Israel has a right to defend itself. We hope the violence comes to an end. All parties must show restraint. We, we urge all parties, blah, 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 and all of that. A more critical question is what they are actually saying in these phone calls to the Israelis. Um, and, you know, I've, again, I've seen it both ways. I've seen in the Bush administration moments when the president made it very clear that his view was do what you need to do. And I remember in the Lebanon war when that was not the message and the United States was uh, trying to restrain what, uh, what Israel was doing. So, uh, I'm worried about this, and, and I, don't, uh, I don't think it's a sure thing that the message that's being sent privately to Israel is we understand that you have got to send a very tough message to Hamas here, that this kind of attack on Israel, where there are many people injured, there are people who are killed, hundreds of missiles, central Israel, you know, in, in this week, we've had millions of Israelis in bomb shelters. That's not tolerable. So we talked about one party that's watching this closely is obviously the mullahs in Tehran. Uh, and that's a great time to shift uh, gears a little bit, obviously, as the former Iran envoy for the Trump administration and Venezuela, of course. Uh, we, we are talking a lot on this podcast for the last few weeks on the debate over whether or not the Biden administration should or will go back into the Iran deal, JCPOA. Some of the refrains we hear from the administration, from that same spokesperson, uh, from the special envoy for Iran, uh, your successor, Rob Malley, is that maximum pressure failed. The Trump administration's policy failed, that when, when they took office, things were worse uh, than when they left uh, the Obama administration in 2016. And so, you know, it was a failure. So we need to go back to what was working. In your view, your assessment, did maximum pressure fail? No, no, it clearly didn't fail. First of all, um, by the most 
a common calculation that deprived Iran of about $70 billion. <coughs> what would they have used the $70 billion for? Well, we know what they did with the money they got when the JCPOA was agreed in 2015. A lot of people thought, you know, that it would go to the people of Iran. But we know that plenty of it went to Hamas and Hezbollah and the Houthis, and we know that they increased their defense budget, for example. That's first. That's an important way in which maximum pressure succeeded. Um, now, what, well, what about the nuclear program? Our view was that had uh, President Trump won the election, had we been able to face Iran with four more years of the same and actually increasing sanctions, they would have had to make a deal because of the condition their economy is in right now today, because after all, the sanctions are, for the most part, continuing. Uh, why didn't they make a deal? Well, we had an election in 2020. I mean, if you were advising the Supreme Leader, I assume that, you know, you'd say to him, well, let's just see what happens in November 2020. We need to make a deal after that. We'll think about it. But we certainly don't need to make a deal until we find out who is going to be president and what the policy is going to be. So I um, completely reject the notion that maximum pressure failed. As a, as a, as a follow-up to that, you know, many on the left talk about, uh, you know, a willingness to go into a deal, and the only alternative to that deal is some kind of an armed conflict with Iran. That there was just, they were backed into a corner, and to expect them just to capitulate because their economy was in tatters underestimates the pride uh, of the Iranian regime and that they were going to come out swinging. What do you, what do you make of those claims uh, to, to those who make them? That is the deal well, or war, basically. Yeah, the, the deal, deal, yeah, or, the war. deal or war. Yeah. Well, I don't believe that. I mean, uh, first, uh, there are some options here. And one of them is, again, pressure. Iran was under a lot of pressure. And, you know, sadly, until the JCPOA, there was a unanimous UN Security Council that they didn't even have the right to enrich uranium. Uh, that was given up. But look, um, one option here is a successful negotiation with Iran. Iran under great pressure, giving up finally something it has not yet given up, which is the path to a nuclear weapon. That's a possibility uh, that remains. There's another possibility, because they're not going to get a nuclear weapon tomorrow morning. Another possibility is that the people of Iran get rid of this regime. Depending on what your time scale here is, I mean, if you're thinking 10 years, that is a possibility, because we do know that the people of Iran loathe this regime. And every time they get a chance to show it, they show it. There is another, a, a, a third possibility, uh, and that is that Iran gets a nuclear weapon, and a fourth possibility, which is that uh, at some point between now and they're getting that weapon, somebody steps in militarily. I mean, the, the case that we all worry about is North Korea, where they seemed intent on getting a nuclear weapon, no one acted, and now they've got quite a lot of nuclear weapons. So I don't think it's it's the JCPOA or war. I think it's the JCPOA or a tougher, better policy. So 
I have two follow-ups to that because you made two really interesting points that I don't know that I 100% agree with. But Only only you, two interesting points. Well, only, only two, uh, interesting no, points, two, two specifically oh. interesting okay. points. Oh, okay. One uh, is uh, the JCPOA, uh, I was always understood that it was the only deal to be made because the rest of the coalition were were making about to make side deals on their own. And if we expected any of the, the rest of the great powers to, to be a part of what we were doing to Iran, that was the only deal to make is, is my first question. Right. And the second question is, uh, and, and you take them in whatever order you like, I've been hearing the, the refrain about regime change in Iran. I feel like as long as, you know, uh, I've been in, in, in watching this issue, which granted is not that long, but I've been hearing if we only just wait them out and we only just squeeze them a little bit harder, the moderates are going to show up and they're going to take down the mullahs and Iran's going to come back to being the secular nirvana that it once was. So I guess my question is in either order, uh, one, was, was the coalition really fraying when the JCPOA was made? And two, is this popular revolution by moderates who want blue jeans uh, and, and whatever else you know, the West has to offer actually coming? Uh, both good questions. Um, Rich, did you hear he said that? Both good questions. My, mark the date. Well, there, two, 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 <laughs> you had two, he had two good points. You had two good questions. It, it makes sense. Okay, <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> All right. Um, you know, when you talk to European diplomats, which, of course, I did, um, you find that they had... Uh, I want to be careful with my language and be, be diplomatic here. Minimum high regard for John Kerry's negotiating skills. Uh, I mean, it's pretty widely known that the French were near contemptuous of his negotiating skills. For one thing, he desperately wanted a deal. That's obvious. We all know that. Um, so I don't see any reason to believe that this was the only deal possible. As a matter of fact, if Kerry had his way, it would have been worse. It's well known in the State Department that there were moments when Wendy Sherman, for example, um, or the French, you know, were trying to pull him back from further concessions. So I don't want to get, give Rich a heart attack here, but it could have been worse. So it wasn't the only thing. Oh, it, it's, it, it's about to get worse. It's about to get worse. Just stay tuned, about two more weeks. I mean, come on, uh, look, look at the deal. Look at the sunsets. You know, you've got this in 2020, that was conventional arms, and this 2023. You mean, would the deal have collapsed if everybody had said, no, that, you know, that that particular sunset needs to be extended a little more? I don't think so. And, you know, you've got you've to decide whether you believe the Chinese and the Russians really, really want Iran to get a nuclear weapon, which I don't in the end. So this was not the only deal possible. Um, we could have negotiated, I think, tougher and better, and we could have done better at not letting on to the Iranians that we desperately want a deal. And I am afraid, by the way, we're doing that again right now. Um, second question about regime change. Um, you know, who expected the Soviet Union to collapse tomorrow morning? I mean, who, who thought, and I did, do you think Ronald Reagan believed that it would all be gone? just a few years after he left, a couple of years after he left the presidency. Uh, no one had any way of knowing. I can't predict a year uh, for uh, collapse of the regime. What I do know is this, and I'm not predicting a collapse of the regime. I'm saying it's a real possibility for one reason. It's a vicious despotism, and the people of Iran 
hated. That is why I think we can have some hope uh, and not a forlorn hope that at some point they will be able to do what they were trying to do when they got rid of the Shah in 1979. They, were, they wanted a democratic Iran. And unfortunately, um, the Ayatollah Khomeini gave them the Islamic Republic instead. If there were ever a free election there, we I think we have certainty of how it would come out. So I just think it, what's crazy here is to discard the people of Iran and the possibility that they will someday rule their own country democratically. And as we do our, you know, as we think about our policy toward China or Russia or Iran, it's not a black box, you know. There's not a kind of empty space on the map filled with a couple of ayatollahs. There are tens of millions of Iranian people who don't deserve to live under this tyranny and who don't want to. And we we should be their allies because they are our best ally. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition, as Monty Python fans know. Uh, nobody also expects John Kerry, as as you mentioned, as most diplomats know. Uh, you, you mentioned Kerry. Uh, I have to ask, do you have any reaction to the Zarif tapes that came out? Uh, and obviously John Kerry all over those tapes. Uh, Zarif claiming that he had learned about Israeli strikes in Syria Refer- from him, all that. Re- references to John Kerry. John Kerry's not References. He's not on the... Correct. He's not on the tapes. He's just all over it by name. Uh what do we make of this? Well, first, um, I don't, I've never seen a really persuasive analysis of what it all means in internal Iranian politics. I don't think Zarif did this because it helps him. I actually don't think it helps him with the Supreme Leader. So I, I mean, that's a theory, but uh, I, I don't believe it. What I do think, though, is that, um, this is part of a, of a mistake that Kerry made, which was to put it you know, very simply, getting really palsy walsy with a uh, representative. I mean, this guy's Joachim von Ribbentrop, right? He is the representative, the smooth talking representative of a vicious tyranny. But we learned one important thing from the tape, which I think is true, which is that Zarif couldn't deliver. Let me tell you another story of Zarif not delivering. I met in November in the Emirates with Siamak Namazi, whose father and brother are Iranian hostages. In 2015, he sat across the table, he told me this, from John Kerry, and Kerry said to him, we're getting your, at that point it was just his brother who was in uh, prison in Iran, we're getting him out as part of this overall deal. Well, now six years later and he's still in prison. Did John Kerry lie? I don't think we have to believe that at all. I don't even think we have to believe Zarif lied. What I think is more logical is Zarif's the foreign minister. He has no clout when it comes to nuclear issues. He can't deliver. It's not all that surprising. Foreign ministries generally don't have much clout on, you know, the most significant uh, defense issues. Uh, they don't have much clout with the in, in, with the secret police who hold hostages. I think that may be the most important message, and we're making this mistake again of believing uh, that Zarif is a wonderful negotiating partner and can deliver. 
Well, you talk about hostages. You had an op-ed in the Washington Post back in January, just as you were you were leaving your post, and you urged the Biden administration incoming to make a release of U.S. hostages the top priority before anything else, before sanctions relief. There has been some public reporting. It's being denied right now that there could be another one of these side deals as they go back into JCPOA. Maybe there's cash, maybe there isn't, uh, to get uh, American hostages out, at least one, maybe more. Uh, how do you view sort of the cost-benefit analysis of making those kind of deals where it's not just, you know, I'll trade a prisoner for a prisoner, but, you know, there might be a pallet of cash or, or some sort of other incentive? I'm against paying for hostages. Generally speaking, the United States does not do it. We don't pay terrorists for hostages. This is a terrorist state and a terrorist organization, the Revolutionary Guards. And when we pay for hostages, we're delivering a message, which is that they're smart to take hostages, and it's going to pay off for them in the end. They know exactly what they're doing. Um, Shiwei Wang, who was an American hostage, was you know, has been asked, tell us if you can about the interrogations. It just must have been so terrible, the interrogations of you. And his answer was, no, they didn't interrogate me. They knew I wasn't a spy. I was a hostage. Now, I don't mind trading, you know, man for man uh, here. We, you know, we used to do that with the Soviets. We did it in the Trump administration to get Michael White and Shi Wei Wang out. And I think that kind of agreement is a good agreement. What I'm against is two things. One, paying money, which just incentivizes hostage taking. And two, I am against doing another deal with Iran while our hostages sit in prison. I think it is dishonorable for any country, but especially for a great power, for a superpower, to abandon its people. And that's what we would be doing. I have one last question on Iran, uh, and then we can move on unless unless Jared has another couple of very insightful questions to some insightful points you raise in response. Uh, <laughs> but w- one of the big debates that's going on right now is as the Biden administration negotiates going back into the deal, the issue of terrorism sanctions has sort of been this sticky wicket where there were terrorism sanctions imposed on banks, companies that were originally subject to sanctions relief in the JCPOA, in the Iran nuclear deal. But of course, we were told you can impose terrorism sanctions. So the Trump administration did put terrorism sanctions on the central bank of Iran, the oil company and others. And now the Iranians are saying, okay, we got to lift all those sanctions because those are the banks and the companies that we're supposed to get sanctions relief for. But the Biden administration is saying, okay, well, there's terrorism sanctions on there now. But what they say to justify what they're about to do most likely is these were imposed illegitimately by you and others in the Trump administration. This was a ploy to just make it harder to go back into the JCPOA. How do you respond to that allegation? It's nonsense. You know why? If you can point me to a sanction that was put in place after the election, between the election and the inauguration, then I think you can make an argument and say, well, the the Trump people knew they were leaving, the Biden people were coming, uh, and they shouldn't have done this in a, when they had just a few weeks to go, and they were just trying to make things harder. That is not the case. When we talk about these significant terrorism sanctions and human rights sanctions, they were happening 
in 2019 and 2020, when nobody knew who, you know, who the nominees were even going to be on the Democratic side. Nobody knew what the election result was going to be. There was every reason for the administration to think it was going to be continuing. So uh, it, it's just it's just wrong as a chronological matter. It's just wrong. I don't believe in putting sanctions on, you know, three days before the inauguration. I really don't. And I probably wouldn't have um, sanctioned the Houthis as a terrorist group. They deserve it because they commit acts of terrorism. They are a terrorist group. I wouldn't have done it because it was too close to the inauguration. That is not the story of these Iran sanctions. They were put in place over a period of two years prior to the uh, change of administration. So, Elliot, you're a longtime sort of participant in the U.S.-Israel relationship. You've been in the center of lots of uh, really important events. Uh, you've been in the room when a lot of important decisions were made. Uh, as a pro-Israel Democrat, I struggle a lot because uh, on the left in this country and to a certain extent on the right um, with, with, with the QAnon crowd, but on the left, there are people who give Israel a bum rap these days, whether it be JCPOA and their opposition there, Jerusalem land disputes, disproportional force. How much of this is on the Netanyahu government and how much of this is on the American left in terms of blame and, and what can be done to address this widening gap uh, that some would say on the American left in the U.S.-Israel relationship? Well, some of it, uh, hey, Rich, sorry, but that's another good question. Some of it. <laughs> Three, Dude, did I, have I, have I, can I just ask, have I asked any good questions? I just, I just want to verify. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, some of it, you asked some of this on Netanyahu. Yes. Um, he became a very partisan figure. A lot of people are to blame for that. Uh, Barack Obama, I think, is one of them. But yes, Netanyahu chose sides to a degree that um, is not smart for an Israeli prime minister. And do I think that a little bit of the pressure would be relieved, uh, you know, when, when Israel has a different prime minister? I'd say yes, some of it. That's a piece of the of the pie here. I don't think it's a very big piece. And the reason I say that is, okay, uh, let's say there's a change, you know, in the next week or so, and Yair Lapid and Benny Gantz and all these people come in in a new coalition government. Their policies are not going to be noticeably different. Their policies toward the West Bank, their policies toward Gaza, their policies toward Hamas. Um, you know, if you had a change of government tonight, the IDF actions in Gaza would not change in any way. Because what people don't recognize is that a lot of these issues are total consensus issues in Israel, like Iran. You know, it's a very divisive issue here politically. It isn't in Israel. So I think, in a way, the American left is going to be even more unhappy when Netanyahu goes, because they point fingers at him now as the problem. We're not here talking about the American Jewish community. I'm talking about the, the American left as a political right. entity. Right. Uh, and this is, you know, this is a real worry. I used to say this to uh, Nita Lowy when she was head of the House Appropriations Committee every year. When we, we would have these the so-called Saban Forum when everybody in the Middle East would get together and I'd say, Nita, you need to 
worry about what's going on on the left of the Democratic Party. And she'd say, stop making this partisan. And I would say to her, look, I can't talk to those people, but you can. Uh, now we have a number of people. I mean, look what, look what in the course of this week, uh, you have statements by Rashida Tlaib, for example, and Ilan Omar about what's going on um, in Israel and the West Bank and Gaza um, that are incredibly uh, one-sided. That exists. My fear is that the leadership of the Democratic Party, particularly in Congress now, uh, but but is old. Let me just put it that way. I mean, you've got people who have uh, lifetimes of being pro-Israel, Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, uh, Chuck Schumer, Joe Biden. What is the average age of those people? It's about 78. And the people who are 28 in the Democratic Party don't see it that way. So I think I'm not trying to be partisan because there are problems, you know, in both parties. But it is a problem that I think pro-Israel activists in the Democratic Party need to solve. I don't have any brilliant uh, theories as to how to solve it. Yeah. And Elliot, for for my money, I I agree with you. I would say it's one of the reasons why we chose to highlight uh, freshman Congressman Richie Torres on our first ever podcast as a leading progressive, staunchly pro-Israel member. Uh, And the only thing I would say, and I'm going to be on my soapbox for two seconds here, is that, um, you know, incoming from the RJC does not make it any better. Uh, partisan attacks from Republicans about how not pro-Israel the Democratic Party is does not make them any more pro-Israel uh, is well, I would say. And that's more of an observation as somebody who leads his life as a pro-Israel progressive. And, and that can get uncomfortable sometimes, particularly living in in, in Brooklyn uh, in 2021. Uh, but but there are people out there who are staunchly pro-Israel and are members of the Democratic Party and, you know, not just in Borough Park and in, you know, and in, in Far Rockaway. Yeah, I, I would just say, Jared, I, I remember the days when I was on Capitol Hill and we were in the minority in the House and we would be formulating motions to recommit to put Democrats with bad votes on more aid to Israel, things like that. The Democrats did it to us as well. When we were in the majority. It, it used to be a competition of who was more pro-Israel. Now it's they lobbed the bomb and the other side says, well... You're just wrong. That's not what pro-Israel is. So we'll, we'll save that debate for another day on the podcast. Ellie, I do want to ask one thing, though. We, the, the left has been pushing to condition aid to Israel and hold that aid hostage. Uh, it reminded me of a proposal you had you had rolled out several years ago, maybe seven years ago now, uh, where you suggested that it may be in Israel's best interest over time to transition off this dependence of military assistance from from the United States. That was controversial at the time. How do you feel about that idea today? Well, the purpose of the idea, I mean, the, what, what lay behind it was the idea that Israel is, um, you know, is, is admired by Americans because it defends itself. They don't want American troops defending them. And I think that would be an even stronger argument if they could say, and we don't want any American aid either. We want to buy uh, planes and so forth. You know, look, their military budget's around $20 billion. Their government budget, the annual budget's about $120 billion, and the GDP is getting up towards $400 billion. We're giving $3 billion a year. It's extremely useful for them. But it's a richer and richer country, so the, the, they need it less. 
I mean, every time we do the exercise, we increase the amount. What I would have preferred is the last time we freeze the amount. We freeze the amount because they're getting richer. So would I do it now? No, <laughs> I particularly wouldn't do it if we're going to go back to the JCPOA. Uh, and Israel is going to have to contemplate a military action over the coming decade um, to prevent an Iranian nuclear weapon. Uh, but I think the idea that Israel, uh, which, uh, oh God, it was about 10 years ago, stopped taking economic aid, one of these days should probably stop taking military aid and just do foreign military sales. Vandenberg Coalition. I want to ask you about that new project. You are chairing the Vandenberg Coalition. Can you first just tell our listeners a little bit about who Vandenberg was? What where did you get that name from? Uh, yeah. And what is the coalition? Vandenberg is the kind of person who um, has really disappeared. People have not heard of him. Arthur Vandenberg was the senator from Michigan in the in the forties and fifties who was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And he began as an isolationist. And after Pearl Harbor, he changed. And he became Harry Truman's best partner, really, in the Senate in passing the NATO legislation, for example, and the Marshall Plan legislation, and then getting the budget for those. Um, and he died in 1951. Um, everybody has heard the phrase, Politics stops at the water's edge. That was Arthur Vandenberg, who believed that when it comes to national security, we should try to be as bipartisan as possible. So we thought this is, um, it's a, you know, it's a teaching experience, but this shows what we wanted to do in this new group. This is a group of foreign policy people, a lot of them former officials um, and uh, some academics, think tank people, who are internationalists. And what we're fighting is isolationism. And there is an isolationist uh, movement or trend in the United States, and there's a lot of money behind it. Uh, millions and millions of dollars every year. And uh, so we thought, well, let's let's reassemble the, the internationalist coalition, primarily in the Republican Party. Uh, most of us are Republicans. It's existed for decades and decades, and frankly, it came apart over Donald Trump. So we have in the Vandenberg Coalition some people who were at Trump Tower in 2016. We have a lot of people who served in the administration, including H.R. Uh, McMaster, who was National Security Advisor, uh, Matt Pottinger, who was Deputy National Security Advisor. I served in the State Department. We have lots of people who served, and we have never-Trumpers. We have never-Trumpers. We even have people who publicly endorsed Joe Biden. Where, but, but we haven't disagreed on foreign policy. I guess that's the point. We divided over Donald Trump. We didn't divide over the need for America to be the most powerful country in the world to defend itself. We didn't divide over the need for American primacy to guarantee the security, the prosperity, and the freedom of the American people. So that's the purpose of the Vandenberg Coalition, to reassemble that coalition um, and to... Uh, argue for for a strong and proud American foreign policy. So, Elliot, in, in that vein, 
it looks like before the week is over, uh, the Trump factions in the House of Representatives will have reasserted total control over the Republican caucus, stamping out any any sort of oh well that's any, a big statement that's any, a big any, statement any any hint of opposition from the leadership at least and. You know, with no overriding ideology other than allegiance to Donald Trump, I guess my question is: what do what do internationalist Republicans like yourself uh, do when when it's really become a, a, a litmus test to show you, you know, at least for elected officials, to show your allegiance to Donald Trump? If, full disclosure: I spent uh, a semester as an intern for Jesse Helms on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. I spent a semester interning for Pete King. I, I believe that there are people who disagree with me, who are patriotic uh, Americans who love this country, Rich being one of them, Elliot, you being one of them. But what I can't get my head around is what is the future of the Republican Party if they're going to purge from their leadership anybody who dared disagree with Donald Trump? And I know that that's a sort of a tough and maybe controversial question for a former Trump appointee uh, or two, actually, on the, on the podcast, but I figured I'd ask it anyway. Well, I think your uh, your analysis is wrong. Um, okay. Look at the Senate. Who's being purged? Mitch McConnell? Anybody being purged? Uh, I, I think the Republican Party is larger than the House caucus. And I think you saw something in the 2020 elections where in a number of states, local candidates and candidates for House and Senate did better than President Trump. So, um, you know, we can all cite opinion polls. I, I think, you know, th- this is uh, in part going to be a struggle over the 2024 nomination. Uh, in, in part, it's a struggle over Donald Trump. Uh, but I, I think um, I, I wouldn't agree with your assessment that uh, the vote in the House caucus uh, characterizes every single aspect of life and politics in the Republican Party. I hope you're right. Uh, by the way, I uh, remember, Jared, we, we had Congressman Mike Gallagher on here. And remember, that was that was pretty close to January 6th. And, you know, he had a lot of interesting things to say about his views on the election, uh, on impeachment, all that. He, he, he stood up for Liz Cheney uh, originally, and he reportedly has, has flipped. I, I think there's a caucus dynamic here that that, that is a little bit a little bit different than how you describe. Well, I listen, I hope Mike Gallagher survives his primary that, you know, where, where the far right is coming for him. And Elliot, I hope you're right. And I'm wrong because I'm a believer in a two party system. I think that like whoever's in power needs a loyal opposition to keep them honest. I think when you have one party rule, particularly in some local elections with uh, some local uh, municipalities where they haven't gone to nonpartisan elections, I think it's really not a force for good. Um, so I hope you're right and I'm wrong, but I, I figured I'd ask the question. Yeah, I, hope, I mean, I hope I'm right, too, and I should use this moment to say that I've known um, Dick Cheney for about 40 years from when I entered the Reagan administration and Liz Cheney for about 20 years when I was at the Bush White House and she was at State, and I think the world of both of them. I agree with that, and we would we have invited uh, Congresswoman Cheney to come on the podcast, and we would love to have her on. Still, uh, I have been a big fan of her her leadership on foreign policy and national security for a long time, and will remain thus going forward. We have grilled you. We would like to do some fun lightning round questions, Elliot. 
It's our favorite part of the pod because it means we're almost done. <laughs> What's your favorite Yiddish word or phrase? Uh, yeah, my favorite word is a word that doesn't exist in English, and that's why it's my favorite. Machatunum. Oh, Elliot, I would just stop you right there. You are the third guest on the Jewish Insiders <laughs> Limited Liability Podcast. Two of them Republican, one of them Democrat. So it's a bipartisan favorite Yiddish word. <laughs> so so what we've decided to do is I think this is going to happen this week. We need to go back and start when we go on the website and you see all of our episodes, it's going to have favorite Yiddish word cataloged <laughs> next to each episode title because we're going to really see how people can come together across party lines with their That's favorite it. Yiddish words or phrases. Okay, so our next one in our our fun round is favorite Jewish food. It could be Sephardic, it could be Ashkenazi, Mm. it could be Ladino, uh, any real derivation, but some some favorite Jewish food. Uh, It would be uh, pot roast with kasha varnishkas. I don't know if you know what kasha varnishkas are. Um, It's a kind of pasta with kasha, kasha with just what? Barley, I think. Barley, um, yeah. Um, If you get a good pot roast sauce on your kasha varnishkas, oh, God, it's heaven. It's heaven. My my mother would never make kasha varnishkas because she said it was a shiva food. (laughs) And I guess the only time my family did kasha varnishkas was like on shiva when people sent in food during shiva. So she would never make it in the house because it reminded her of some dead relatives. I got to go back and try it again. I am also, I have to say, I'm extremely partial to blueberry blintzes. Okay. No, and and what a wonderful time to mention that as we come upon Shavuot. That that that's perfect. That's perfect. Uh, are you reading anything that we should know about, or have you read something recently you think others should read? Yeah, I want to mention two things. I just finished a book called "A Savage War of Peace," which is Alistair Horn's book about the Algerian War. A lot of your listeners may know about or have seen the Battle of Algiers, uh, mm-hmm. a movie. Um, well, this is the real story. Um, and it's, it's really quite, uh, you know, horrible and fascinating for people who like fiction. I came across a thing called five novels called the Casale Chronicles. These were written in the, I guess the eighties by Elizabeth Jane Howard, but they're about a British family, a large family, you know, brothers, parents, children, um, in the thirties to the fifties. So, suffering from the what happened in World War I still, and the Depression, and the war is coming, and then it comes, and what happens during the war, and then Britain after the war. Uh, uh, five novels, totally absorbing, wonderful. So Downton Abbey before there was Downton Abbey. Well, no, they're not. It, it's close. They're not noble. They're okay. rich. They're rich. Okay. So you get a little bit of that because there are a lot of servants, you know, but, but it isn't quite that level. It's more, I don't know, Upper middle class, I guess. Fair enough. All right. Last question. Um, and you can take the Fifth Amendment if you like. But uh, favorite boss that you've ever had in government? You know, it's um, it's a toss-up for me between George Schultz and George W. Bush. They were both great bosses in the sense that they cared about you as a person. They listened. Um, they had really high standards of conduct. Um, it, it, it's hard for me to pick one of those two. Of course, we just lost George Schultz a couple of months ago, but um, they were paragons. They were model bosses to work for. Elliot Abrams, thank you so much for joining the podcast. We would love to welcome you back in the future. 
love to do it. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks, Rich. Thanks, Jared. And Jared, uh, such a pleasure to have Elliot Abrams on the podcast this week. That was an amazing conversation. Uh, I would note that given everything going on right now, it is likely that people are listening to this podcast potentially in bomb shelters. uh, And we think about them and we hope this was a good conversation to have at a very, very important and timely moment. Indeed, Rich. Uh, Thinking of our brothers and sisters in the Holy Land, praying for peace uh, and praying for more conversations like this where we can uh, disagree, exchange views, but not vilify each other and, and move the conversation forward. If you have any comments, questions, show ideas, and tips, send us an email at podcast at jewishinsider.com. Also, please come follow us at Twitter at J.I. Podcast, or when we're in the clubhouse, come on into our clubhouse room. And remember to follow and subscribe to the Limited Liability Podcast on your podcast listening medium of choice. Until next time, this is the Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening. All the-